Hi, this is Rob Long, one of the founders of Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to listen to is a production of Ricochet.com, the home of center-right conversation about politics and culture on the web. If you've been listening to these podcasts for a while, you've probably heard about our site. Maybe you've even visited once or twice. Well, now I'm about to make you a special offer to join our growing community of civil and clever conversationalists and interact with contributors such as myself and Peter Robinson, John Yu, Pat Sajak, Mark and Molly Hemingway, Mona Charon, Jane Nordlinger, Paul Ray, James Lilacs, Troy Senek, James Pathakoukas, Judith Levy, Arthur Davis, James Dellingpole, and many, many more. I know I'm leaving somebody out, but conservatives are very polite. And they won't complain. Now, in addition, you can create your own post on our vibrant and lively and widely read in the Corridors of Power member feed on any topic you like. Culture, politics, sports, food, you name it. Interact with like-minded conservatives from around the country and across the world. Listen to our podcast being recorded live and live chat with your fellow members and even attend in-person meetups across the country. It's quite simply the best community on the web and the most fun you can have with a keyboard. And trust me, this is a community getting more influential every day. So join Ricochet today and get a free 30-day membership. Go to ricochet.com slash offer now. That's ricochet.com slash offer and claim your free 30-day membership on me. And now on with the podcast. And I'll see you in the comments on Ricochet. All right, my friends, let's go to the phones. First up is Bob from South Springfield. Welcome to you, sir. Hello, Birch. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Kudos for bringing the public back to the Republican Party. It's high time people realize we conservatives aren't all Johnny hate mongers and Charlie Bible thumps or even, God forbid, George Bushes. <gasps> that sounds like Sideshow Bob. Yes, ma'am, Sideshow Bob. Jacking it up on the old jackpot. Dad, I'll spare you the embarrassment of admitting you don't know who Sideshow Bob is. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Glop Culture Ricochet podcast with me, John Podhoritz, Rob Long in Los Angeles, and Jonah Goldberg, I think, in Washington, D.C. Is that right, Jonah? No, I'm in Seattle. Oh, he's in Seattle. Actually, well, in Bellevue. Bellevue, which is you know, a distinct uh, and separate locale. Well, I was going to start singing uh, the theme song to Here Come the Brides, a uh, rather unpopular late 1960s a television show that began the bluest skies you've ever seen are in Seattle, but you're in Bellevue. So the whole gimmick is now shot. Thanks very much. You ruined my day. Rob, how you is... managed to get something out of it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. That's true. Bobby Sherman was on Here Come the Bride, so that really dates me. Uh, uh, Rob, how is uh, Los Angeles? You know, I've been on mute now, so so I, I I've been sitting here trying to say the same thing for about five seconds. It's not that it dates you, John. It's how does that all fit inside the head there? I, I don't have the foggiest idea. You know, the uh, there is does a certain. Leave? Do you like forever like wonder? Do you ever look at a no? But nothing comes in think? anymore. No, <laughs> okay, I, right. I, nothing comes in anymore. It's all crowded. It's crowded with 1960s theme songs, <laughs> and you know. Uh, cast lists from failed pilots and things like that. And I and whenever my internet goes down, and if I have to IMDb somebody, I'm just going to call you. Just call Pedorts. Really? And you know, this used to be a valuable uh, quality before Google, and now it's of no use whatsoever. Well, I don't know if I'd call it a valuable. Thing. Well, no, it used to be a sort of thing where people went, "Wow, you know that?" It's like, yeah, I don't need you. I can just go to Google for that. Yeah, but I'm not sure that's true. This is a debate in my house, right? Because my dad, one of the things he insisted on us whenever we asked a question, we didn't, he didn't know the answer or we didn't know the answer, he's like, let's go look it up. And we'd have to go find a book somewhere in the house to look something up. And now I have the same problem with my daughter who thinks it's a chore to look up things on the internet, <laughs> and, <laughs> which just dismays yeah. me to no end. Right. And um, she's like, oh, you're going to go look that up? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know? And I think, John, you forget that, like, and maybe it's because you have little kids and you have, you know, a life that you don't get into a lot of bar arguments. But the ability to know stuff before people check what you're saying on Wikipedia is still a valued commodity among a lot of people out there. Well, thank, thank, thank goodness for that, because for those of us who, uh, who really used to impress people by, by, 
by by being able to rattle off the names of the two Darrens. Now that's nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Well, yes, yeah, that is nothing. Now, got you speaking, all the old all the old crafts are gone, John. No, but uh, it's by the way, like, like, I'd love to. I'd love to be a part of that bar argument. Uh, Bobby Sherman wasn't in that cast. Yes, he was. <laughs> he was. You want to step it out? Was Leif, uh, it was Leif Garrett. Leif Garrett. Uh, now you're mixing up generations. What? It was, uh, what, are you saying that I'm confusing David Cassidy with Sean Cassidy? Because that is really extremely <laughs> offensive. It's go time. <laughs> uh, hey, so, <laughs> so anyway, this believe, is hard so embarrassing. Using chemical weapons, huh? Yeah, that Assad, you know, let me tell you, he was really, really, really good on the San Pedro Beach Bums, 1974 CBS, five episodes. Anyway, Bashar al-Assad... Uh, Barack Obama, Vladimir Putin. Uh, the question that uh, must be answered is, is this actually all happening or is it coming, has it sprung full bore from the comedy stylings of Rob Long? Well, I will say this, um, that what I love about it is that you could say that Barack Obama's uh, uh, unsold pilot, How to Bomb Syria, you know, <laughs> <laughs> was canceled by evil network president Vladimir Putin. Or you could say I was just thinking last night I was out with some people last night and realizing that I even I have a strange new respect for Jimmy Carter. <laughs> well, that's a, I wrote a column the other day in which I said uh, Jimmy Carter can rest easy now because there is a president who was worse at foreign policy <laughs> yes. than he was, and that that is really that's, that takes a lot of doing. But you know, it's an interesting analogy or analogy to the to the uh, failed. How to bomb Syria pilot because you know about this better than anybody else. But it is almost as though at the White House, no, no. But what happens in meetings, right? So you have this meeting. So Barack Obama's network president. So so John Kerry comes to him and says, "I got this great pilot, How to bomb Syria," and he says, "You know, this is a fantastic idea. We're going to go ahead. I'm commissioning scripts. We're going to do some casting. But could it be? Uh, yeah." The you know, could, yeah, could it could could it be that we're not bombing Syria? How yeah, about could, that? Yeah, could it could that be the show that we we're not doing it that we're waiting because it's not yeah. important? And yeah. then you turn could to the writer. That we're going to do it yeah. ourselves. Or, right. Yeah. Okay. So we're, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go. We're going to give a speech and say, "I am bombing Syria, but." Maybe Congress should approve bombing Syria. And you know what? I'm gonna go I'm gonna go to Stockholm for a couple of days. Play golf, go to Stockholm for a couple of days. You you handle it, you make the pilot, I'll come back and I'll 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 decide. Right. And and, and what what usually happens is you you then have to convince the writer and I know this because I had both convinced the writer and been the writer who was convinced that it really isn't that big a change. In fact, <laughs> it's exactly what you said. Right. And you can see you can see John Kerry and, – and can we talk for a minute about his face? But after – in a minute. We'll get to that but, 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 by the way, you can see thing, John Kerry. One thing you're yes. at the, where the analogy falls apart. Is it at some, at <laughs> really? Some point, oh, really? Analogy falls apart? How at, dare you? This is one of the greatest point, analogies ever. At some point, someone comes into this conversation and says, "Now, don't you know? Don't don't say no right away. But maybe Vladimir Putin could actually be a woman, and there's like a love thing going on, and they're fighting over custody of a small black child, right? And that's where it really becomes like a sitcom." Well, well, exactly, but the small black child—the small black child—is of course Bashar. chemical weapons. <laughs> chemical weapons represent the small black child. What are you talking about? Jeff? Assad has them. Putin says he will uh, take custody. Assad says will say no, and then the kindly judge is going to—the uh, kindly judge Ban Ki Moon at the UN—is going to have to figure out how to how to yeah. split the baby. Yeah, he, he's like he's Mr. Miyagi. He's uh, he's Mr. Miyagi exactly. Now here's my here's here's what I think you're you're saying. Uh, now of course the thing that happens in failed pilots, failed scripts, all of this is that uh, people desperate to get on the air will will end up doing just about anything to get themselves through the season, and they will violate their own principles. Right. They will destroy their own ideas. Right. So well, here is my favorite. Is, you're telling me this. Yeah, no, 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 I, yeah, just, that, yeah that happens. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm just setting up okay, my right. joke, okay? <laughs> okay? Let me set up my joke. So here's my joke. My joke is that uh, 
uh, there is a person named Samantha Power. Samantha Power came to prominence and fame in a Pulitzer Prize by writing a book called A Problem from Hell about the, uh, about the uh, near genocide uh, in Kosovo and, um, uh, you know, won a Pulitzer Prize, wrote about the, how the West was losing its moral compass by, by not, you know, fighting against uh, the, you know, the humanitarian disasters and having a responsibility to protect those who are, who are uniquely weak, right? So Samantha Power is now the ambassador to the U.N., uh, for Obama. She was Obama's chief foreign policy advisor in early uh, 2008 before she called Hillary Clinton a monster and had to back away. And so this is her issue, right? This is her issue, the use of chemical weapons against a, a populace. This is everything that Samantha Power stands for. This morning, Samantha Power, who was mysteriously absent for the last two weeks, except for one extremely bad speech she gave last week, has a tweet And the tweet reads, this morning being Thursday morning, as follows. Quote, three days ago, there seemed no diplomatic way to hold Assad accountable. Threat of U.S. action finally brought Russia to the table. Unquote. Now, here's what's happened. Samantha Power, this is her pilot. Barack Obama says, hey, you know, it's a wonderful idea. It's a great pilot. But how about we don't bomb Syria? And she goes, okay, okay, fine, sure. Why? Because she's got this great new apartment in New York. She's living in the Waldorf Towers, wonderful building where the U.N. ambassador's apartment is with her, with her uh, schmoopy Cass Sunstein and, uh, and, and her baby. And, uh, and so what if her entire life's work has just been crumpled up and thrown in the garbage can? We have just seen today someone take her own work crumple it up and throw it in a garbage can simply for political expediency. It doesn't happen that often. It's worth noting and celebrating. It doesn't happen that often, really? This, to this extent, the notion that somebody who, if she were out of office, if this were a Republican, would be, would be writing the most fervid, yeah. passionate denunciations of the immorality right. of American foreign policy and its refusal to follow the doctrine of responsibility to protect, which is something that she herself largely devised. It's also worth pointing out that Samantha Power, I mean, this is something that like, I, I don't think is common knowledge outside of the Beltway, but uh, as, as a prominent liberal journalist said to me recently, the thing about Samantha Power is, he's like, mostly it's men who are, who are really obnoxiously arrogant. Samantha Power is unbelievably obnoxiously arrogant and sanctimonious and condescending and she always in her public appearances and her public composure acts as if she is the pope in the room with the highest moral authority and the highest and clearest principles and everybody else needs to strive and work and toil to reach her level of righteousness and wisdom and here she is basically doing the man for all seasons things giving it all up for whales or a suite in the Waldorf Astoria. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really extraordinary. You know, it, it, we're, we find ourselves in a position. I find myself in a, in a position I never in a billion years would 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 think that I would be in, which is feeling sorry for John Kerry. I genuinely feel sorry for John Kerry. He's been out there for two weeks saying the evidence is screaming at us in the face. We cannot have this happen. This is Munich. This is Hitler, blah, 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 blah. And then the president of the United States, who sent him out to do this, cuts him off at the knees by hugging, by by gripping the legs of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. If this was a really broad sitcom, you know, a sort of kind of, you know, really sort of slapstick kind of comedy, this would be the funniest ongoing joke of the entire season. Because every time John Kerry in his unbelievably sanctimonious you know, way straightens up, gets thrown under the bus. He gets out, he straightens up his stuff, he cleans off his face, and he's ready to give another stem winding speech. And Obama comes out of nowhere, grabs yeah. him by his belt and his cuffs, and hur- hurls him under the bus again. It's, I mean, it's, I, I think it's, it's not in the football. It's yeah, awesome. it's not really sitcom. This is a Mel Brooks movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it a, is. Well, is it, does it seem strange to you? What seems strange to me is that also, if you look at this if, if, this administration right around now, in a in a in a in the in second half of uh, 
a presidential administration worth you know, things are, you know things tend to unravel right around now anyway but this one's really unraveling right around now especially in this one which has got to be one of the most amateur hour incompetent uh, uh, presidential administrations in in, in modern history uh, right around now the people are 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 deserting in droves and writing books I mean you got to say this for the guy. He he maintains this kind of uh, Reverend Mooney like uh, sway over his underlings, whom he he, he, he uh, you know is, is not is not necessarily um, the, the best boss to. I mean, no, is anybody writing the tell-all book? Oh, I'm sure. We just don't I know don't, who it is yet. I don't. I don't know. But these 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 two weeks um, really do. I mean, we something has gone on here that I I don't know. That we have an analogy to. I mean, this this journey of never seen. Yeah. yeah. Now, now here's as it happens as a as a matter of general course. I would have had no difficulty with an American strike on Syria after the revelation that the government had used chemical weapons against its own people. A strike. That is to say, what where this has all gone, which is the notion that the civilized world cannot sit by and see these weapons used without a powerful response. They've been used hardly ever. They've been used twice in 80 years. Um, uh, This opens up, literally, it is what the Pandora's box is. You know, it is what Pandora's box was essentially chemical weapons. Um, we, We have to do something. If the president on August 21st, when we first discovered that the Syrian government had used chemical weapons against its people, had gone on television that night and said, I am sending cruise missiles to damage, to degrade... Uh, the chemical weapons stocks of Syria and to punish the Assad regime for doing something unconscionable and evil, right? Right. And then Republicans had said, it's not an act of war. This is an act of, uh, this is a a statement of outrage and a a, a clear message uh, that if you leave a civilization in this way, there will be consequences. And then Republicans like John McCain had said, but wait, this is ineffective because what we really need to do is change the momentum of the civil war so that the rebels win, so there'll be a negotiation, blah, blah, blah. Then Obama could have gotten on his high horse and said, I'm not going to war in the Middle East. You're the one who wants us to go to war in the Middle East. This is about punishing the use of chemical weapons by an evil and barbaric regime. We can't do everything. We're not going to do regime replacement. We don't have the means to that. We don't trust that the rebels are people that we can necessarily support. But we could not stand by and do nothing. And instead, he has done absolutely the worst possible thing, which is he didn't do that. He waited a week to acknowledge that the chemical weapons had been used. He signaled that we were going to use them. He then... He then allowed a week's worth of buildup to the notion that this was going to be warfare, which it's not. It's the use of a war weapon, but not war, uh, to grow so that people could say, well, what are we going to war in the Middle East for again? And then he comes out and says, we're going to do this, but you know what? I'm going to do this. I have the right to do it. The military says that. Everybody says I have the right to do it. But I'm going to make Congress say it's okay for me to do it. And while I'm making Congress do that, I'm going to leave the country for five days so that I so that I can keep my hands off it. This is without right. without analogy. I can't think of anything even remotely close to this. I'm not even talking ideologically here. I don't, you know, because the ideology is very weird. The partisan splits and divides are very yeah. weird here. This is something else. This is like irresponsible, childish, selfish. Thoughtless, careless behavior on the ever, part of the leader of the free world. It's 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 unconscionable. Do you ever think maybe he's just mad at us? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's mad at us. I, I don't think I think he's mad at us, and he's mad at like Assad, and he's mad at Putin, and he's mad at everybody for just being so difficult and making things so hard. That's what I. That's the. That's the impression I always give Barack Obama. Th- he's mad. You know, he's like, just shut up. I think I that's say. true. That's the speech that he gave. First of all, this is the other part of this. Is so. When does he come out to tell the American people that you know the conscience of the world has been violated? We are going to take uh, action against Syria. He does it at one fifteen in the afternoon on Labor Day weekend, Saturday. Yeah. 
what on earth is that about? So who's home at one fifteen on Labor Day weekend Saturday, the last Well, you are. You're catching up on your, your 1960s pilot, failed pilot watching. <laughs> you know what? That's Most right. people are out barbecuing. Right. And that is my sunshine. right. That is my right as an American. I don't need watching well, Arnie, right. Arnie with Herschel Bernardi or Paul Sands and Friends and Lovers interrupted by Obama's angry speech. Yeah, you were was angry. You, you were writing your Jaime the Robot fan fiction. That's correct. <laughs> slash, slash fan fiction, by the way. Not just fan fiction, slash fan fiction. Because that um, would be Robbie the Robot and Jaime the Robot, or maybe the M5 from, uh, or, oh, or, yeah. uh, or Nomad from Star Trek. Anyway, here's the key point I want to make. He was angry. Rob is absolutely right. He spoke in this tone so of like bad. aggrieved yeah. anger about how Congress was being so, you know, everyone wasn't just coming behind him to do what he wanted when nobody even knew what he wanted. But I knew he wouldn't he say what he wanted. I, I saw that speech later. You're right. I was I was out enjoying, you know, uh, uh, my, the outdoor lifestyle. But uh, when I watched that speech later on YouTube, I really did think to myself, a part of me anyway. Oh, you know, we really should bomb Syria. I mean, he wants it. And, and it's just going to be so much easier if we just do it because he's just going to make such a big stink about it if we don't. And it is really like a kid. Like, just, just, oh, just let him do it because he doesn't understand any of the stuff that's happening. It's all baffling to him. Um, uh, you know, he woke up and, and read that uh, op-ed in the New York Times by Vladimir Putin, which has to be – it's just indescribably weird that we live in a world now where the president of Russia writes an op-ed that the New York Times prints and everyone in America reads it. Well, not everyone, but actually very few people read it. But people talk about it and think, oh, so, so, so this is how it goes now. This is how, this is how international diplomacy works. Once your president is humiliated, now I print an uh, op-ed in your newspaper. Now I, I print up ed, I print I print up ed in newspaper written by Washington PR person yeah. where now I, I where I, I interject. Print, what is it, what is it, now I print your milkshake. Now I, now I drink. I your milkshake print your too. milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> what? So the question: Who wrote that? You said a PR. Do we know who wrote it? Yeah, Ketchum. Ketchum Public Relations wrote it. It's you know, and then and then what they do is they send it to the Kremlin. The Kremlin says, you know, what we should put in there how in fact the chemical weapons were used by the opposition, mm-hmm. and they're gonna and they're and the opposition is gonna in the civil war. The opposition is gonna hit Israel. Now, here's what's interesting: the whole premise of what's going on here is that Putin is going to secure chemical weapons that have been used by the Syrian government, so that we don't have yeah. to go to war there, right? And in the op-ed that he sends the New York Times or that, uh, or that Ketchum, his public relations firm, sends the New York Times, he says the chemical weapons weren't used by the regime. So the whole premise of uh, Putin's uh, salvation of the uh, strike, uh, he himself totally undermines in this op-ed that came out as we're speaking this morning, thir- Thursday morning, uh, September 12th. In the New York Times, it is a the president is sitting there having just been not only having had his milkshake uh, right. drunk, but but having this is a, an almost unimaginable humiliation for him. Putin is saying, you know what, you Americans, you are not exceptional. You not exceptional. It's bad. You say you exceptional, then you do bad things. Only UN can declare war. Right. This is a guy who went to war in Chechnya and Georgia, and he's right. saying only the UN can declare it's illegal if if you go to war without UN sanction. I mean, what is going on? What, That's why I say is, I feel sorry for. This is why I feel so sorry for um for John Kerry of all people because he like went out and he did what people do. He said terrible things happening. We have to stop it. We're going to do something. It's not even going to be that big. Don't worry. You know, you don't have to stay up at night. No one's, there aren't going to be any boots on the ground. And even that, even that this guy can't do. Even that he has to go out and say, I was elected to end wars, not start them. Like anybody was ever elected to start wars. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's just disgusting. I don't know. Teddy Roosevelt might've been, but (laughs) (laughs) But, I got to give a few, but um, I, I think old you know, the only problem here, you know, I was giving this speech last night and people were asking me about the Syria thing. And 
I started to try to catalog all the ways this thing is screwed up and all the potential downsides. And you, you really, you can't, you know, I mean, um, you know, just while we've been on this podcast, essentially, uh, you know, reports are coming in that North Korea has started up its plutonium reactor. And, um, you know, you have the British, and then some of that was David Cameron's fault, obviously, a lot of it. But you know, the British, for the first time since the American Revolutionary War, undermining a prime minister um, on a, a question of war. Um, you have, you know, the Anglo-American alliance is a mess. Our allies think we're a mess. And so much has happened so fast. You know, it was weird. Last night I was giving this speech and I was like, normally I have a little time to prepare on current events. It's not like you go to the bathroom and come back and tax policy debate is completely changed, right? But like it, is, it was really weird flying out to the West Coast when this stuff was happening and you land and you start checking Twitter and looking at your phone and reading your email. And it turns out everything that you thought was happening five hours ago is now completely different. And the, I, I just think that the, 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 the half-life of this thing is going to be so long and so ugly and, and so problematic. Um, and at the end of the day, I think we're still going to have to bomb Syria. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Goldberg has a very good argument about this. A lot of people made this argument, you know, that That's Times Square. That's Times Square, my friends. That's Times Square, 16 nice. floors below me. Wow. Uh, yes, Times you know, Square, everybody. We are going to have, um, I, I thought, like, maybe, like, the producers of Ricochet thought I was about to curse. We're just hitting the little center. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we're going to, you know, it is going to be impossible to sort of unravel all of the negative stuff on this. And at the end of the day, um, since the weapons inspection stuff is not going to work, and the storyline over That's time is true. going to be... Well, the weapons inspection stuff always works. <laughs> you know, that stuff a... really goes on without it. We, we, you know, I can, I can, it happens a lot. That happens took, a lot. It always works. America hasn't been get, able to get rid of its stockpile for 15 years, and we're not in the middle of a civil war. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, so it's going to be a mess, and at the end of the day, we're either going to have to f- bomb Syria anyway, or um, Obama is going to simply have to say, okay, Russia, you're in charge of the Middle East now. I mean, it's going to be an well, that, unbelievable mess. That, that has happened. I mean, Russia is in charge of the Middle East now. Yeah, Can but it's you- provisional. It's provisional, right? I mean, it's still, everything's in flux. By the time we get off of this podcast, it is entirely possible that the Chinese have moved in. You know, I mean, everything, everything bad that can happen seems to be possible to happen. Which brings us to a really important context uh, question, is which I would like to get back to at some point, which is John Kerry's face. John yeah, Kerry's I, I face. Want to hear about that. Let's get back to let's get, get off these uh, really light topics and get to John Kerry's face. What, hap- what, what, what is the what is the is it? Did he have some work done? Oh, of course. Uh, he. Uh, I mean, I well, think he had, know, a, he had an. What idea, happened right? was he was uh, in a bar uh, and. Uh, you know, he, he he went up to the bar, and someone said, "Why the long face?" I mean, it, yeah. well, what else? Right. Obviously, I mean, he is the man is seventy four years old, and if he didn't do something surgically, his face was literally going to slide down to his belly button, sort of like you know what happens with certain women uh, as they get older. So he had to do something to keep that from from happening. I think. Yeah, but sometimes something is not better than nothing. And I've been having this raging debate with lots of people on Twitter about how best to describe John Kerry's face. And for a while, I thought my um, contention that he looks like a Dick Tracy villain. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's best. good. That's good. But um, of late, if you've ever seen Sin City, he looks a lot like Mickey Rourke in Sin City. Um, oh, he does. Well, you know, that, that's also a problem. Yeah, he also no, had a lot of bad true. work done. Yeah, and um, and for a long time, I was working under the consideration that he was in fact simply wearing an ill-fitting John Kerry mask. Um, but it is it is it is disturbing to look at him. And when when you're John Kerry and your hair moves more than the skin on your face, you have botched your plastic surgery. I uh, no, I understand. I understand was, the eye. Yeah. I understand the eye tuck. I no, get that. that chin is 
three inches longer than it used to be. But the chin is strange. Now, is it? I mean, are we? I mean, I don't want to like make fun of the guy if he's ill. I mean, it, 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 he actually had all that work done at in, in the mid seventies to look different. It just seems kind of, uh, you know, the. I mean, uh, Berlusconi um, had uh, eye work done, and uh, which you can tell. And I think he had some like chemical peels or something didn't go well. But if you look at him, he's got those eyes, those kind of weird, like almost amphibious eyes, you know, that you get when you have them pulled back too much. And uh, the uh, uh, the prime minister Belgium famously had uh, well, not famous. There's nothing about the prime minister Belgium that we can call famous, but he uh, also had a lot of work done. Um, I think in between, like after he got elected and after he took office or something like that. Um, but this guy, there, there's a, there, this is a problem. This is like Carol Burnett. You know what I mean? The the, the John Kerry. It's like um, Cher. It's like you know? Cher. It's a little like Cher. It's too much. By the way, did, I have here. Did I have Kerry here, have a rib removed? <laughs> that was that was Bo Derek. That was Bo Derek who had the two ribs removed to create the taper effect. Uh, and that, by the way, uh, one of those many facts that I remember for for, <laughs> yeah, for say, no good, good reason. For no good, good reason. Lord. Um, I do have some quotes for you on John Kerry. Quote, it looks to me that he has limited movement on the left side of his face, said cosmetic dermatologist Tina Alster. He doesn't have any movement in his face at all, said plastic surgeon Barry Cohen. So I think we have expert evidence to suggest that there is something wrong with John Kerry's face. I don't think we're just right-wingers making fun of John Kerry's face. These are quotes from the Washington Post. I, I find it necessary to say that because, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm feeling very sorry for John Kerry, uh, John Kerry these days, because it's, it's, it's very rare to see a person have his testicles removed in public, and I think we all really should take but a the, moment. But, yeah, but, it created, I, I, but it creates the taper effect, John. It creates the taper effect. It does. Yeah, the pants hang really well. It's true. Yeah. It really. Uh, and the Speedo, you can't beat, you can't beat the Speedo effect, no. I think. If I had two ribs removed, I would look like a schmoo. Um, <laughs> a schmoo! A schmoo! Now there, okay, the first Ricochet listener who knows what a schmoo is um, will, win, will win a uh, non-speaking part on the next failed uh, pilot uh, uh, from the Obama administration. Doesn't, doesn't the schmoo appear to a dibbick in one of the uh, store? Oh, maybe not. I don't know. Ah, you don't even know what the schmoo is. I don't know what the schmoo is. Let's uh, leave it in mystery for the comment section. Yeah. You know, we, have, we, have, we have to we control section, the comment section. If you know what the schmoo, no one's allowed. This is why contests like this don't work. Get, go, look yeah, up Google. the schmoo on Google, and then they can pretend that they knew it all along. Um, it is but, not but, the case. But getting back to John Kerry, first of all, I, I think of him more as uh, a creature of ridicule in all of this, in part because I've always thought he was a human toothache who takes himself way too seriously. He thinks he's so smart. Yeah. It turns out he's an incompetent boob. Um, and I love it when incompetent boobs, um, you know, rollerblade into a pane of glass. You know, I mean, I just I, I like it when they they have their 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 un- downfall in public. It's sort of like feeling to me feeling sorry for John Kerry is like feeling sorry for Dan Rather during the Memo Gate stuff. You know, <laughs> Kerry is getting his well deserved and long standing comeuppance for being an arrogant jackwad. And um, but it's funny I was talking to a colleague of mine at National Review. And if you, if you had said in 2007, who are the five senators that it would be most disastrous to run American foreign policy, it would probably be Joe Biden, John Kerry, Chuck Hagel, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, right. Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. It's the League of Supervillains. It really, it's amazing that these are the guys, I mean, that, that you know, like, we have dragooned into running American foreign policy, and the fact that they're being shown up as incompetent, you know, it's 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 a silver lining. I would rather, you know, that America not be, you know, trolled by the president of Russia, you know, and the Nobel Peace Prize winning president of the United States stopped from bombing a Middle East country by the president of Russia. But uh, it's it's you know it's a consolation prize. Yeah, but I, you know, here's the thing. I, Aren't all senators terrible and awful, no matter where you put them, no matter who they are? Aren't they all just big disasters? They're so 
pompous and, and, and inflated and self-important. It's such a terrible job. I mean, it, or, or, or it, it attracts horrible people and then or, – and, and, or, and, and it amplifies all of their negative qualities because you're there for six, six years. You're there longer. You swan around. You always, they always feel better and smarter than the president. You only have to win a statewide uh, – uh, not like the president. You've got to win the whole country. And all you do is talk. I mean I don't, I've never really no, met agree. a there's, senator. I didn't want to punch in the nose. There's a senator disease. I remember – this is what – and I think senators make bad presidents generally. And um, well, they've almost, they've almost never made presidents. That's, yeah, it's very rare. It. You know, there, have been two in, there have been two in the last hundred years, yeah. Kennedy and Obama. So, yeah. um, Well, and LBJ was a longtime senator, right, you know, even though that's not how he got into the office. But, right, right. Yeah. Um, um, but the, you know, the best example of this, of the sort of senator-itis that I always remember was, wh- what year was it that uh, Orrin Hatch ran for president? Was it, was it 96? <laughs> John, um, you know I, when I Bobby Sherman appeared I in the was, I think it was, uh, <laughs> By the way, I think I think it was 1988, and you're talking about the Osmond pilot now. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're talking about <clears throat> or Merlin Olson. I mean, but, Merlin Olson as as Orrin ha- as Orrin Hatch. I think would so, be good casting. So Orrin Hatch, there was a big talk up on the stage about leadership, and. And Orrin Hatch was getting fed up with this talk about leadership. And he kind of lost his temper as much as Orrin Hatch can and said, you want to talk about leadership? You want to talk about leadership? I co-sponsored the omnibus resolution out of committee onto the floor and achieved cloture on the vote on the main question. And I was like, you've been in the Senate too long if you think this yeah. sounds like leadership to the American people. Like it might actually be leadership. the Cheesecake Factory. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, there is something – I don't think they're terrible. But I think there is some – there's an interesting aspect to this. So, you know, everybody remembers Dan Quayle was an idiot, right? He was an idiot, blah, blah, blah. He didn't know how to speak. He said misspelled potato, all of that. And there was all this how could he pick him? How could Bush have picked him in 88? So the story of Dan Quayle is a story about what can happen because of the U.S. Senate, right? There was Dan Quayle. When Bush picked him, he was 41 years old. He had won a Senate seat at the age of 29 by running an insurgent, unlikely, come-from-behind campaign. He ousted an incumbent. He had served 12 years. He had sponsored two important pieces of, of, of legislation. On paper, for a president who was old from the World War II generation, this was an absolutely brilliant pick in every possible way. Except that Dan Quayle was Dan Quayle. That was the only reason that it wasn't a brilliant pick. On paper, you couldn't believe your eyes how perfect he was, right? So the Senate's like this constantly. Are these people that are on the Senate Foreign Relations? They're on the Intelligence Committee. They served on this. They co-sponsored that. They've given long speeches because, you know, that's how the Senate works. You can speak forever. And they did it. They learned this. And they had good staff. And they blah, 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 blah. And then they come out. And if you meet them at a party or you go somewhere, you have, they are like – Anybody else only worse. They're like the people who who were in the student senate in college. Like, who does that? What rational person goes and serves in the student senate in college? Like some, you know, when there's so much good television to watch. There's a alone lot. By the way, dorm. you're alone in your dorm, and it's very important because they just <laughs> remade Fantasy Island. You don't, <laughs> Is I that, just want to oh, say you have you don't have to be you don't have to be alone. That's not a law. That yes, have to do. be the circumstances. <laughs> yes, you do. You have to be alone to watch Fantasy Island and in, in the Love Boat, so you're not distracted. Yeah, by 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 uh, other 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 youngsters out having fun. Yeah, quiet. That's this great. Is the you big the, third the, act turn. The problem with you people is that you went to colleges where people drank and had fun, and I went to the University of Chicago. When when I wasn't watching The Love Boat and Fantasy Island, I was actually reading Thucydides. So I don't want to hear any of your guff, buddy, about <laughs> what, my well, television that's what it is. watching. Wasn't Thucydides that, that pie dish scientist that Twiggy carried around in Buck Rogers? This That was not... <laughs> <laughs> that was wow. that was Doctor What was Theopolis? Doctor Theopolis. See, you know more than I, and I re- and I read Thucydides in college. I'm sure you've read Thucydides by now, but I read Thucydides in college twice. I read Thucydides twice. 
So Twice. I don't need your guff. Now, that you was. Need, you don't need my guff. That's, what, that's the takeaway. That, I don't need your that guff. That should have been the name you of the fancy podcast. Dartmouth <laughs> Ivy boy. You. I don't Dartmouth. need that. Because some. Dartmouth. Wait, didn't you go to Dartmouth? To Yale, sir. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, Ooh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, big difference. Yeah. Well, I, which I, I, I've told this to I'm Rob sorry. Before. I have to go to Maury's now. <laughs> oh, someone's <laughs> tapping me. Someone's tapping me in my secret society. Gotta go. I've, I've told this to Rob before, but every time I hear that he went to Yale, it reminds me of my favorite line from this, one of my favorite lines from The Simpsons where Sideshow Bob is visited in jail by um, – uh, not Sideshow. Yeah, Sideshow. No, no, no. Uh, Kelsey Grammer. Uh, yes, Sideshow Bob. Sideshow Is visited in prison uh, in jail by his brother, um, who's another clown. And at one point, uh, Sideshow Bob says to uh, to his brother, who's played by Niles from Frasier, says, um, you know, just because you went to clown college doesn't mean you're better than me. And his brother says, I do wish you'd stopped referring to Yale that way. <laughs> you know, I just want to say this is another thing you think, you know, it's really not that impressive to know trivia about the the most successful animated comedy show ever made. I mean, that's fine. Everybody <laughs> knows that. I want to know some lines of yes. dialogue from Wait Till Your Father Gets Home, 1972. <laughs> that was the Flintstones in the present day. Meaning mm-hmm. it was about a father and a mother and two kids in the house. In in wait in, till in, your father gets home. It, uh, uh, in in uh, in in the Stone Age, like no, they, no, they it was kids? just it was just like you know it was just like a family show, except it was animated for no for no reason whatsoever. So that's what, and you don't remember it, and I do, and that's the difference between you and me is that you don't remember wait till your father gets home. <laughs> Not only don't you, you remember, what I want to know is John passed out a little bit here. John, I am not. Let me just tell you, something. John, I it am was not. Checkerboarded. A... Okay, now there's. What, do you remember this? The checkerboard, checkerboarding programming. Isn't that what we did to illegal combatants in the war on terror? If only, if only, because no, this was when at seven thirty guys in uh, in Nam. At 7.30, right before family hours started, uh, some stations would program five nights a week of half-hour sitcoms and Wait Till Your Father Gets Home was one. And then She's the Sheriff. Oh, that's – yeah. We, with we, Suzanne we, Summers was yeah. another. Right. No. And, it was, and, it was uh, First Run Cindy. First Run Syndication. But it was called – but it was checkerboarding. Uh, I don't think so. We, we call that, that stripping. I, first, run, first Run Cindy sounds like a really mean thing you say about a loose girl in high school. Yeah, she's a, yeah. You you got to go out with first run Cindy. Uh, uh, yeah, it's very lucrative. I, anyway, I, so. I, I, that could be. Now, my question is now, John. I am not, as you know, uh, um, licensed to practice neurology in the state of California. You're not. No, but I. But oh my, my God! Question, so that so that explains all that stuff why John Kerry's face is drooping. <laughs> all that stuff in in your head. Do you ever sometimes look down at a normal object? Like a, a, a fork or a, 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 a screwdriver or something, some simple object, and then it t- takes you a while to remember what that that thing is because there's so much other data in there. No, here's what happens. Like what I remember is that there was some episode of you know, <laughs> oh. Manix on which yeah. a fork was used as a weapon. That's 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 what I remember. Okay. The problem for people like me is that when I hit the age of 45. My, my literally my storage capacity filled up, so I I can read books now and I can do and I cannot remember what happens in them. You need to clear your cache. How? How do you do that? The cookies are not deletable. I don't know. Why? It's a tragedy. It is a tragedy. A joke. <laughs> Nobody told me that the cookies would not. Be, you couldn't delete. You can't. The cookies. Delete the I will say. I will say that if I end up. With Alzheimer's, I will probably be pretty entertaining because I'll be able to sing songs from my pat, you know, all that. Yeah. I'll have no short-term memory, but my long-term memory is going to be very, very amusing. I don't know. Let me ask. I think we should uh, – Jonah, do you think that John will be uh, an amusing uh, Alzheimer's uh, patient? I don't know. I, I kind of have a <laughs> Gee, pretty, thanks, guys. <laughs> a, 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 a pretty unpleasant image of John sitting on a yeah. folding beach chair in his living room, yeah. lashing out with his large arms. <laughs> <at people. laughs> 
boy, you guys really <laughs> so nice of you. Here I am being self-deprecating, and you just you're like jumping on top of me. No, of course you'd be a wonderfully uh, amusing. Would you like some more orange stuff. juice, John? Simon <laughs> Templar was the saint. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think you are, Dick York or Dick Sargent? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, so now that we've had this preposterous uh, detour, um, the question I have is, is America finished, Jonah? (laughs) (laughs) It just seemed like a a good transition. Um, I mean, how do we come back from this? Seriously. How do we come back from the last two weeks? Um, uh, I... It, look again. I, I think it's 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 really fouled up to use a nice word, um, and it's going to be I, uh, cheer up for the worst is yet to come is my standard phrase. Um, <laughs> I I don't think America is finished, but we're going to be cleaning up this mess for a really 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 long time. I mean, I, I just you know all sorts of interesting things and and and. And problematic things are happening. I know that there are a lot of people heartened by the fact that a couple of days ago in Colorado there was this um, uh, ouster of these uh, of these two uh, state level uh, politicians who had become gun controllers after after Newtown and Mike Bloomberg pumped all this money into into saving them and nonetheless they were defeated. So that's a that's a real victory, you know, for 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 some on the right. However, I will say that. I'm here in New York, and Tuesday night, um, in a in a in a clear repudiation of the last uh, of the unbelievable and astounding successes of the last twenty years, uh, the Democratic primary electorate, which is really probably going to be deciding the election, uh, the mayoral election in November, uh, chose the most left wing person in the race, a guy named Bill De Blasio, who is pretty close to being you know an out and out socialist who's ma- one of whose major campaign positions is that he is going to eliminate every aggressive form of policing known to man uh, in order to you know make sure that nobody is offended uh, when they get stopped um, uh, for you know for for possible trouble and you know this is New York City uh, the great experiment in the salvation of something that appeared to be unsalvageable. And here we are uh, looking at the possibility that in, in January, the regime you know, that has led to about 8,000 more people being alive than would have been alive uh, had, the, had the new policing not started under Rudy Giuliani in 1994, uh, all ended sort of you know, with a wave of the hand. Um, and it alarms me. It doesn't surprise me, but you know, you, you have to be alarmed by the fact that that this has happened. Some people explained it here, as you know, you have literally an entire generation of people who don't know what it was like here before. Um, a lot of older people have moved away. They've retired. They've gone somewhere else, and so you have both young people who don't remember the New York of the past, and a lot of people who've moved in who are like, yeah, this is really, it's so hard, all this play, you know, why are people so, and they think that being able to walk in Central Park at night is normal. They think right. that being able to go walk anywhere in the city without, without a sense of menace or really being at, at risk of being killed is normal, and it's not. And it, it, it really, you know, that, that was, was 40, it was like 30 years of, of horror, and there was 20 years of reclamation, and, you know, the question is, have the changes been so solidified that even bad mayoral decisions are going to uh, – are not going to have an effect? Or, or, or is this consensus really fragile and are we going to go the way of Chicago and Detroit? Any uh, – so well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm in a very – I'm in a very gloomy state right now. Well, from, from a million – from, you know, 3,000 miles away, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm waiting for, like, signs of the culture about how – uh, a little grittiness will be good for New York City. When the crime starts to go up, there'll be people saying, "You know, it's a, it's more New Yorky," uh, because right now New York is what what I, I mean. What does it rank in terms of violence in in America? Like 10, no, 10, no, 12 it is, it is cities, the least. No, something it, like it that. is thus the safest large city in the world. Yeah, it's some, something incredible. In the world, not yeah, in the world. America. It's incredibly low. So and I, and then, you know that's what when 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 Giuliani cleaned up Times Square, there were all these articles about oh you know time, I missed the gritty reality of Times Square, uh, all that stuff. So I, I suspect that'll that'll happen. That will that will our, like like the the swallows returning to San Juan Capistrano. That will be our first sign that 
uh, things are getting really lousy in in uh, in New York again. The, the the first time will be the apologist for it about well, no, how yeah, it's more time, normal. You know, this is really more real. The first time will be a New York an in depth New York Times piece yeah. on some community in Brooklyn or Queens about how the blacks and Hispanics are finally getting to embrace their distinct culture of uh, condoning. Uh, drug dealers and pimps in their neighborhoods. John, you remember that New York Times piece about how oh, yeah. Rudy Giuliani was horrible because he didn't understand that in Hispanic and black and poor neighborhoods, they just have a different worldview about drug dealers and pimps and crime that it's part of their lifestyle. Yeah. And it's really sort of white imperialism to assume that they don't want it. And that I think we're going to see a lot of that sort of nonsense come back. Uh, but I think in terms of the country, I would here's what I would say. I mean, in terms of the the, the country, uh, what what's interesting to me right now is first of all is that is that the entire conversation has shifted now as of uh, whenever uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, op-ed went live, um, in which he sort of his last that last uh, d- deliciously evil paragraph which was about how hey you're not so exceptional stop being exceptional there's no such thing as american exceptionalism is a bad idea the entire conversation has shifted from a tyrant's use of chemical weapons or even let's just be brought more broadly based a tyrant's slaughter of his own people in the middle of a brutal and, and horrible civil war to american leadership and its legitimacy and that, to me, is a sign of a of, of a rudderless, leaderless, uh, incompetent, um, not very smart president and administration. And to to me, like, yeah, the the sooner he and the great thing about America is that the sooner he's out, the better. Um, he can't get out soon enough, but 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 that's where we are. I mean, we, the, the only thing that's fun about this is watching his lickspittle acolytes in the press. Uh, twist themselves into bizarre, more, even more bizarre contortions to try to figure out a way that this is a big win. <laughs> you know, the funny part is somebody somebody did draw the the very interesting analogy that it was just around now in in the fifth year of of George W. Bush's term that Katrina hit, and uh, and of course Katrina became the the sort of the the moment at which. Uh, the American people uh, decided that George Bush was an incompetent and that the right, which had been defending him on, on Iraq, uh, joined in and said, yes, this is, you know, obviously they don't know what they're doing. And this was a, a way, I think, for people on the right who had thrown themselves, you know, in to very much the mix on, on Iraq could could express their anger at Bush for having uh, behaved in a way that they think was sort of feckless on that and having left them out to dry and made them all defensive and everything. So, and of course the Bush presidency effectively ended then. Uh, the only thing that happened positive after that was the surge, which was a policy on Iraq. Um, he got nothing through. And then of course 2006 was a calamity and it was a calamity in two ways, right? It was a calamity, A, because the Democrats were surging and they had found this unity. And, uh, and, um, and there was all this, these bizarre sex scandals um, that popped up. Um, and I'm wondering whether, you know, the, the analogy is really not precise. But I think you really have a, a situation in which uh, why would Democratic Senate, you know, Senate Majority Leader um, Harry Reid ever uh, pick up the phone to take Obama's phone call again after what Obama put him through over the last two weeks. He's got to champion an unpopular piece of legislation for Syria, twist arms, yell at people, bring them back home early from vacation to have hearings, you know, all mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then Obama cuts him off at the knees too. And he needs Reid. He needs Reid. Like Reid is the only – Would it know, all be his... thrown away? I mean when, you know, what, what's the next big fight? The debt ceiling again? Don't we, don't we have a, another debt ceiling fight? We have the, de- we have the debt ceiling and we have uh, – uh, what's, what's the other th- – there are two things, right? There's the budget. There's the, there's the budget and the debt ceiling, both. Um, and you know, the one difference, of course, is that the Republican Party, unlike the Democratic Party, is really divided. You know, it's divided on strategy, on how on how to whether we should, you know, 
go to the mattresses again on the debt ceiling to defund Obamacare or to do it on the on the continuing resolution, which is the budget, which is the the budget resolution. Um, uh, you know, and and you have a lot of people on the right saying we have to fight, 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 make them make them defund Obamacare, which of course is the last thing on earth Obama would ever agree to in any negotiation in any way in any form at any time. Um, so it may be that the divisions on the right will make the the kind of 2006 moment impossible because there's also too many incentives for people on the right to be uh, sort of crazy, I think, and not and not and not you know, sort of see the political opportunity for what it is. Um, yeah, this kind but, of raises a, a point I've been wanting to make for a long time, you know, about Obama. Um, you know, there is a tendency on the right, and I completely understand with it, and I've often shared it, you know, that Obama, you know, it has to be like the Battle of Stalingrad, and you can't, not one step backwards, not, not one inch um, can be given to Obama. And I've increasingly come to the position... Um, that that's the wrong way to approach Obama. Because it turns out that whenever Obama gets his way, it works out pretty badly for the guy. Um, you know, I mean, he got Obamacare, and Obamacare is, yeah. to use a technical term, a disaster. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and, you know, it was designed to fail, but not to fail this quickly. And, um, uh, and it's, it's, it's becoming ever more unpopular because of its own internal flaws, not because of the arguments conservatives use against it. And same thing with foreign policy. This was Obama's, you know, foreign policy from the get-go. And I now feel like, you know, Scarface in that scene where he starts yelling, you stupid blank, look at you now. I mean, it is such an unbelievable mess. Um, and I, I think that on a lot of these things, like the, the Ted Cruz approach to the Obamacare thing is really problematic because, you know, it is a, the only way we're really going to fix these things if we win some elections. And, you know, and that has to be the goal for Republicans is to win the Senate back in 2014 and the White House in 2016. And any sort of hammer and tongs fighting on policy stuff that distracts from that and 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 in the meantime, I think is, is ill-conceived and, and counterproductive. Well, I, I think there's a lot to that. As I say, I think there are shifting, shifting incentives on, on, on the right. The Republican Party's incentives don't necessarily match the conservative movement's incentives, and the conservative movement's incentives are themselves divided between yeah. people who, who uh, really see fundraising opportunities yeah. in, in a kind of you know, all-out Stalingrad you know, dig-in and others who want to play a longer game and think of this much more, you know. But when you're losing, it's much easier to bicker, right? When the other guy seems to be stumbling and there's blood in the water, you tend to come together, right? So, so uh, it, it's harder for the Republicans to figure out a unified strategy when they're up against a guy who seems to be running circles around them. But I don't know, past two weeks, three weeks? Right. Well, that's that's why that's why I wonder about this. I mean, I do think that there is reason to believe that the effective period of Obama's presidency is now really at an end. I mean, he has now he has what we're now going to see is the pullout from Afghanistan, which he's going to claim is a great triumph until Afghanistan devolves the way Iraq has been devolving after our pullout from there. And he can blame that on Bush all he likes, but it's still happening on his watch. It will have been his decision. And now we have this, we have the domestic horror of Obamacare, and then we have the other foreign policy stuff that's going on. So his effective leadership may be over. The question is whether, whether the right will gather together, because there is this peculiarity in my, in my reckoning of it, that uh, that there is this notion that that we really have Obama cornered and we can get him to defund Obamacare by forcing him, <laughs> right, right, well, by forcing because he really needs that debt ceiling lifted. But that is not a strategic. What happens if the debt ceiling doesn't get lifted? I mean, the last time the debt ceiling almost didn't get lifted, though it was lifted, was raised. You know, um, America's credit rating was downgraded. Like this is no joke. This is not a game. Right. You know, you have to know what the play is after you succeed in your aim of derailing, you know, the good working order of the United States government. What's the play? What's the step after that? What happens then? That's what I'm not hearing from the right. That's what that's what disturbs me. 
um, because I, I, I don't know what it is that they think is going to happen if they disrupt the workings of the U.S. government to achieve a partisan name that may happen anyway, the way things are going, it's just as a matter, sort of organic matter of the disaster that Obamacare is strategically and tactically. I don't but, know. You know. But, you know, now, you know, but, you know, you know, the reason that I bring this up is that there was an episode of the Hardy Boys where in Springfield, they they passed single payer and, you know, it was really uh, terrible. So um, I think I, that was actually a Johnny Quest, just for the record. But ah, Johnny Quest. Yeah. Well, Johnny Quest, is a very fine multicultural program. And I, I, I commend it, it to everybody. One of my favorite scenes in, in all of cartoondom. First of all, one of the things I loved about Johnny Quest is they used real bullets. Like, it was a cartoon where you saw, like, the savages chasing them in the jungle. They would shoot them with rifles and kill them, which is just, like, unimaginable in yeah, today's cartoons, crazy. right? I mean, they would get bullet holes in their chests and die. <laughs> it was just amazing for a cartoon. And one of my favorite lines was, I can't remember the plot like it really matters, but at the end, it turned out that what they thought for a while, sort of like a Scooby-Doo thing, for for a while they thought that this gargoyle was a real gargoyle, and then they pull off the mask off of this gargoyle, and the line is something like, of course, it's Thor Jorgensen, the world's foremost midget gymnast. (laughs) (laughs) Rob, why why can't you write dialogue like that? Are Why you kidding me? I do. I write dialogue like that, like that every day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, well, gentlemen, uh, we are we have uh, we have we have come to the end of this um, Spenglerian visit to bad television, um, and uh, I'm wondering uh, if anybody has anything to peddle, Rob. Uh, I have nothing to peddle. Uh, well, you know, I do. Wait a minute, I do. Yes, you do. I have something to pedal. Your unicycle. Uh, yeah, I will be on Tuesday night. Uh, I'm just looking at the thing. Tuesday the 17th, the 17th I am speaking uh, to a group uh, of the Hancock Park Patriots. Uh, they are at a sort of a, a conservative center-right group here in Los Angeles. Um, and I don't have any of that. You just Google Hancock Park Patriots as Tuesday night, and I'll be there. Uh, it's at Busby's. It's a restaurant in L.A. you got to pay a little bit um, to go. And uh, I'll be talking about media, new media, and our opportunities for taking back the country. So there you go. Nice. And Jonah? All right. So I'm looking at my calendar here. Oh, geez. Here we go. Okay. So on September 17th at noon, I believe, I am on a panel to discuss Tevi Troy's wonderful new book on presidents and popular culture. Uh, an excerpt, an excerpt of said book is in the October issue of Commentary. Oh wow! There you go. So there he we was go. on our he was on the Ricochet podcast yesterday. And um, on the nineteenth, I am moderating a debate at the Independent Independent Women's Forum about uh, feminism and the role of chicks or something like that. I got to look up what I'm doing there. <laughs> um, and and on the thirtieth of September and October first, I will be in. Uh, Minneapolis for uh, giving some speeches for CFAC, Collegians for a Constructive Tomorrow. You can check out their website for details. And on October 3rd, I will be at Wilkes University in Pennsylvania giving a speech. Go to their website for more details. Wow. So there you go. Wow. I am exhausted. Well, I will, of course, uh, be uh, opening for Carrot Top at the uh, Giggles in West Nyack, New okay. York, as you know, um, go to the uh, website uh, most depressing club in America dot com. Okay. Uh, it's next. <laughs> it's it's next to the bowling alley. Slow down. Um, right, down. So I'm ready. Okay, it's next to the bowling alley. And when I mean next, I mean there's an alley, and then you have to go behind the pins to get to the club. I get you. Yeah, and um, uh, Carrot Top, by the way, has had uh, also had work done, and he he now looks exactly like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> um, you know, have you ever thought of getting work done? Um, I, I have thought about uh, getting work done, and the problem is that if I got work done, I would look even more like Son of Sam than I do already. 
So I don't know. I don't know that it's a wise choice. I think enough time has passed. I think enough time has passed. Okay. Well, as you can see, my reference is really to end in about 1977. Well, bring the look back. (laughs) That's right. Uh, That's uh, Jonah will be starring in the remake of Ten in the part of Bo Derek. Uh, and I, I can't wait to see him running down the beach in slow motion with with his two ribs missing. Yeah. That really will be <laughs> fantastic. So uh, thank you very much, everybody. Maybe we'll have better uh, news to talk about uh, next time. Um, and, you know, the country will not be quite as humiliated as, as it is as we close off the show today. So uh, this was uh, your latest Glop Culture, John Podhoritz, Jonah Goldberg, Rob Long, and we will talk to you soon. Fellas, see you soon. All right, guys. And it's war! And it's war! Get on the horses! On the horses! And it's war! Fredonia's gone to war. Each native son will grab a gun and run away to war. The country's going to war. Is it? The country's going to war. And as the country's going to war, we're going to war. This is a fact we can't ignore. We're going to war. This is a fact we can't ignore. We're going to war. In case you haven't heard before, I think they think we're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. We're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. 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 Ricochet. Join the conversation.